Thanks so much. It's wonderful to be here. Professor Roberts is a scholar whose work I greatly admire, uh, so it's an honor to be invited by him. Uh, so in, uh, in the chapter entitled Chapter 2 of Black Reconstruction, the chapter entitled The White Worker, Du Bois writes, America thus stepped forward in the first blossoming of the modern age and added to the art of beauty, gift of the Renaissance, and to the freedom of belief, gift of Martin Luther and Leo X, a vision of democratic self-government, the domination of political life by intelligent decision of free and, and self-sustaining men. What an idea and what an area for its realization. Endless land of rich fertility, natural resources such as Earth seldom exhibited before, a population infinite in variety of universal gift, burned in the fires of poverty and caste, yearning toward the unknown God and self-reliant prisoners unafraid of man or devil. It was su the supreme adventure in the last great battle of the West for that human freedom which would release the human spirit from lower lust for mere meat and set it free to dream and sing. And then some unjust god leaned laughing over the ramparts of heaven and dropped a black man in the midst. It transformed the world. It turned democracy back to Roman imperialism and fascism. It restored caste and oligarchy. It replaced freedom with slavery and withdrew the name of humanity from the vast majority of human beings. Du Bois is not the only one in the 1930s from the perspective of the United States who saw the U.S. race relations as an instance of fascism in the 20s and 30s. Uh, uh, <coughs> Hitler in Mein Kampf, uh, in the chapter Nation and State, there are different chapters in different translations, uh, talks about the United States as the model for his nation for a national state, for, for, for his, his goal of creating a national state, a state based on race. He says, the pattern United States has, become, has in its immigration policies and its race relations has made developments towards being the kind of state that I'm urging today. Um, uh, my, my colleague uh, Jim Whitman in his book, Hitler's American Model, uh, uh, describes how the Nuremberg laws were based upon our anti-miscegenation laws, except our anti-miscegenation laws with the one-drop rule were considered far too extreme for the National Socialist lawyers. So they stopped at one-eighth. You were Jewish if you were one-eighth Jewish. So my goal today and my goal in my book is to, uh, to, to familiarize, to, to, to make fascism less mysterious to you. Uh, we think because it's a because it's an Italian word. It's a Euro, it comes. From, it's, it sounds like it's a European innovation. But really, uh, the the fascists, particularly National Socialists, look to the United States uh, as their model. Hitler's Hitler's view of Ukraine, of his plans for Ukraine to uh, to uh, mass genocide and then enslave the Slavs and have them work on large plantations was based upon his, albeit limited, knowledge of the antebellum South. Uh, in Hitler's second book, unpublished second book, speaking of the genocide of the indigenous Americans, he says, who anymore speaks of the Red Indian? So the United States was a model, and the United States had a thriving fascist, uh, fascist movement, um, and it was intermingled with uh, emblems of U.S. of U.S. Uh, patriotism. For those of you who have, uh, for those of you who have 
uh, many of you have seen the video that, uh, that um, Marshall Curry discovered somewhere. Uh, he discovered it a couple years ago just on some floor. It's called A Night at the Garden. You can, you can uh, Google it. Um, it's a, a packed Madison Square, 1939, February 1939, pro-American rally. Uh, addressed by, uh, opened by the head of the German-American Bund, who, uh, who decries the Jewish media. Um, uh, at, 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 the, at the front of the, uh, the uh, pro-American rally is an enormous 50-foot picture of George Washington festooned with swastikas. So, uh, so the, uh, the, the Nazis carefully monitored what was happening in the United States as Bradley Hart uh, Bradley Hart's book, Hitler's American Friends, shows which each chapter is devoted to a different group of people who supported, who were linked with the Nazi party, and the chapters will be familiar to you. Chapters like The Religious Right, The Businessmen. Uh, the, the Nazis regarded Charles Lindbergh, the head, oh yeah, and another chapter uh, familiar to, you, to anyone following uh, American politics today, the America First movement. Um, so, uh, so that's not even a dog whistle. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so the the Nazis considered the Nazis considered the German American Bund kind of, you know, untethered from reality, and they thought they would they were just far too extreme to win support. But they looked to Charles Lindbergh as a, as a potential American Hitler. So we have we have the roots. We have the the politics of. Uh, of the, the political structure and ideology of fascism uh, is an American thing. And Nancy McLean's uh, 1994 book, uh, Behind the Mask of Chivalry, about the, uh, about the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, she lays out the ideology of the Ku Klux Klan and makes it vivid that the ideology overlaps with the many folkish movements uh, in Germany uh, in the 1920s, one of which was uh, the uh, NSDAP, the, uh, the National Socialists. Um, the idea that there were an international conspiracy of Jews who sought to overthrow uh, white Christianity by bringing in non-whites uh, and giving, uh, giving women equal, uh, equal uh, Hitler at one point says the Jews gave women uh, are responsible for, for the women's equality movement um, so the idea was the Jews were, 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 uh, were behind these movements of equality that sought to undermine the uh, traditional role of uh, Christian, uh, Christian, white Christian men. Um, 19, uh, uh, in the 1920s, uh, there was the Black Horror on the Rhine, which the NSDAP, which Hitler made great uh, use of. Uh, black Senegalese soldiers on the, occupying the Rhineland from the French army. Um, there was a, a rally of 10,000 people in New York City in 1924 protesting the black horror on the Rhine, supposedly black Senegalese soldiers uh, having children with white German women. And Hitler said, it is the Jews who have brought this. So this idea that the Jews are behind, uh, are behind, uh, are behind interracial uh, relationships, are, are urging immigration, uh, as we saw with Squirrel Hill. Uh, the killer in Squirrel Hill said, uh, was he, he 
killed those people because of the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Uh, that is the old theory that Jews are behind lax immigration laws, which was, which was core to Nazi ideology and core to Ku Klux Klan ideology. So now the word fascism is, however, more, in, more unfamiliar than the ideology. I think the more you read about the ideology, which I'm going to delve into greater detail uh, today, uh, the more familiar it becomes. But the word, of course, has this European ring to it. Um, from 1928 to 1935, there was a fascist internationale. Right now, we're having, it's almost a mockery of, uh, of, of the past. Now there's a national conservative internationale. They just simply replace that. I mean, America first, national conservative international. Is this a joke? Uh, and, uh, and the fascist internationale was a grouping of fascist movements across the world unified by the ideology that each of us thinks we're the best. And, and, and that turns out to be unstable over time because, you know, the Poles are like, actually, the Russians aren't the best. And, you know, so, uh, so fascism contains some internal tensions which will be key to its defeat. Um, but uh, uh, in, uh, in the book, The Fascist International, 1928 to 1935, um, the, author, uh, the author reports on a Spanish fascist who was invited to speak, and he said, I'm not a fascist, I'm Spanish. Um, so that should be a reaction to the word fascism in the United States. Americans would never use some Euro-trash word to describe a good old boy ideology. But the ideology is familiar. Uh, the ideology, and especially the politics, is familiar. Um, and it never went away, uh, but now we are seeing uh, its resurgence, not just here, but worldwide, and we're seeing the linkages between, uh, between uh, these movements. Now, in the literature on fascism, there's a huge, and that's underestimating it, literature on fascism, mostly from the 1950s and the 1960s. And it divides itself into sort of two groupings of books. One grouping of books looks at authoritarianism and theorizes fascism as a species of authoritarianism. Uh, Adorno and, uh, and co-authors authoritarian personality was originally supposed to be called the fascist personality. And you see traces of this in the F scale, the name the F scale. The F scale stands for the fascist scale. But because of political pressure, they renamed it the authoritarian personality because, of course, there was political pressure to condemn both communism and authoritarianism. Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism theorizes fascism and, com and Stalinism and communism together. Um, which I think is responsible both for some of its great insights and for some of its deep weaknesses. For example, Hannah Arendt lacks a chapter on the patriarchy. You cannot theorize fascism without theorizing the patriarchy. Fascism is deeply and inextricably patriarchal. Um, but communist ideology, at, at any rate, is superficially uh, egalitarian. It's not patriarchal. So if you want to theorize what's uniform between communism and fascism, you're going to miss some of the central aspects of, of each. Um, uh, I don't think, as Arendt, Arendt famously says, well, there's two unifying simple doctrines that are easy to draw the masses in, class and race. 
and fascism is just the result of, of going with race and, and communism the result of going with class. But I think that's too easy. A communist authoritarianism is, is, is a different structure, a different ideology. It has a different relationship to the ideal of freedom and a different twisting of that ideal, to the ideal of equality, I should say, to the ideal of equality. Central to fascism is a rejection of equality. Is central to fascism is an explicit repudiation of equality. Alexander Stevens, the cornerstone speech says, the cornerstone of our doctrine is a rejection of, of equality of races. Um, so, uh, so what I try, so in this, so that's one feature of this literature, this huge literature. Another feature is that people are looking at different things. There, I can point you to books that say the Nazis aren't fascists because they focus so much on the Italian model. And the Italian model is different from the, from the uh, German model. So um, you have people with, uh, 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 Roger Griffin talks about 20 different ideal types of fascism. So uh, if, you talk about, if you talk about the relationship of the government to the business world, you're going to have a very different story when you look at Italy and you look at Germany. Um, Hitler, Hitler speaks, uh, Hitler's relation to the businesses was hands off. You do your thing and support, support me. It, uh, it's very much a model uh, reflective of Putin in Russia. Uh, you know, the oligarchs support the government and then they're left alone. Whereas in Italy there was a much more intricate relationship between the government and private business. So, uh, so my book does not uh, my book and my talk today, where I'm going to talk about my book in, in the absence and riff off it, uh, con connecting it to the co contemporary situation, which is, uh, for which it is ever rel relevant, <laughs> and there are ever more vignettes than ever uh, at different times, um, uh, is uh, I, I'm focusing on the ideology and politics. I'm focusing on the ideology and politics. You know, you look at different. Uh, you look at different fascist regimes and there's, there's great differences between, uh, between the structure, between the relationship of the secret police to the government, between the relationship uh, 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 of the relationship to, to, to the, of the economy to government. Um, I'm going to be talking about the ideology and, and, and the politics as a way of attracting votes. Fascism is a way of drawing support. Uh, and I hope that in this sketch, that I give you today, you'll see, you'll recognize familiar grooves and patterns. Fascism is very much a homegrown ideology. It is for that reason that Hitler, although profoundly ignorant of our history, looked to our country. Um, and that's why in my work draws heavily on the work of uh, black American scholars. Uh, if you look to Toni Morrison's speech, at commencement speech uh, at Morehouse in 1994 on fascism, um, uh, you will find a brilliant uh, recognition that the threat of fascism uh, was, uh, was coming on the horizon. She talks about the imprisonment, the targeting of, of the hated groups, young men and children, and detention centers growing uh, to hold them. Um, so of course, you, so you, you have an anti-fascist uh, uh, tradition in the United States, uh, and it's on that on which um, I greatly draw. As I was telling Neil, the two books I found most essential in recent years are Du Bois's Black Reconstruction and Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism. Um, so in my book, 
I have what I call 10 pillars of fascism. It's a trade book, so there have to be 10. If it was an academic book, there could have been 11 or 14. Um, but, uh, but uh, and I'm, go I'm going to illustrate them. I'll, f I'll first tell you what they are. They're the mythic past, propaganda, anti-intellectual, unreality, hierarchy, victimhood, law and order, sexual anxiety, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Arbeit macht And let me talk about each in uh, e each of them. So uh, beginning with, the, let's begin with the mythic past. Now all conservatism involves hearkening back to a wonderful past. All nationalism involves myth that, that uh, but, but uh, a lot, so, uh, th there's versions of nationalism that are not intrinsically objectionable. These are versions of nationalism that mythologize an, an, an imagined community in Benedict Anderson's famous fra phrase. Uh, but the imagined community wasn't necessarily a great community. Sure, some sheep farmers spoke Polish over there, and some fishermen spoke Polish over there, and it was great, and they shared roughly, they were all Catholic, and that was wonderful, and, you know, and it's an invention, really. It was more different than that, and the sheep farmers and the fishermen didn't have that much in common. But that's an unobjectionable nationalism. Um, fascist, the fascist mythic past looks very different. It always harkens back to an empire, a military empire, uh, a time at which the nation was pure. There was one ruling group, one ethnic group. You see this very clearly with the Hindutva movement in India right now, um, uh, RSS, uh, where Modi, uh, the party to which Modi, Prime Minister Modi originally belonged, was explicitly influenced by the Nazis. Uh, mein Kampf was uh, explicitly an influence on RSS. Uh, the Hindutva movement claims that, uh, that India was once pure and pure Hindu. Um, uh, Wendy Doninger, if you've heard of uh, uh, what happened to her when she published a book, The Chicago Historian, when she published a book in India on, uh, on uh, Hindu religion and feminism and sexuality, she was, immediate, she was attacked. As, as sort of corrupt Western influence. Uh, Hindutva, uh, Hindutva represents uh, Muslims as invaders. Um, you'll find them inveighing against the Muslim atrocities in India, by which they mean 800 years ago. They mean Muslim rulers 800 years ago. And in, in, Muslim, there have been Muslims in India for a very long time. But the Hindutva ideology says Hinduism was a pure patriarchal system. Um, uh, men were men and, and, and the Hindus ruled over India. Uh, and then Muslims invaded and, and committed these horrific atrocities against Hindus. And the invaders are still here. Um, when I speak in Spain, I find it somewhat horrifying that they still celebrate the Reconquista as if <laughs> you know, like they threw Muslims out after 700 years. Um, so, uh, so we have these myths that last. Um, so the idea is that in the past there was a great empire. The empire, uh, the empire was patriarchal, the, em the country was pure, the people ruled, and then humiliation happened. Invaders came, um, liberals told us to accept the invaders and open the gates. Uh, the country's greatness 
was dimmed by acceptance of these invaders and outside foreign influences and humiliated. And this humiliation must be paid back. Of course, Hitler had Versailles, uh, had the humiliation of World War I. Um, when I first, I, I first started thinking about this book, when I, in 2009-2010, innocent times for, in, in Europe uh, to some extent, uh, I was in Hungary running these summer schools. And Orban, in 2010, Orban had just won in uh, Budapest. And everyone was talking about Trianon. And I was like, Trianon? That was a long time ago. But they had just had a president, uh, an election to lead the country that was like obsessed with Trianon, with a, when hun Greater Hungary was lost in World War I. Uh, and it's a it was a completely incoherent idea. The idea was Hungary was once a great empire, and then there was this national humiliation. And, uh, but and, and immigration is this threat to the Great Hungary. But actually, Greater Hungary was a multi-ethnic society with many languages, and it wasn't a pure Hungarian society. It's when Hungary was weak that it was a pure Hung Hungarian society. Who wants to go to Hungary now? Um, but you know, when it was the Austro-Hungarian Empire, that was a different story. So this idea that in the past there was a great military empire, the, uh, Hitler looked back at, at the Holy Roman Empire, uh, Mussolini looked back at the Italians, um, you have, at, at, at the, at, sorry, Mussolini looked back at, the, uh, at Rome, um, and you had, uh, you had people explicitly, Alfred Rosenberg, uh, the, uh, one of the great main Nazi ideologues, explicitly talked about the use of the mythic past as a weapon. Um, so this idea that the country was once great and needs to be returned to its greatness and has faced national humiliation. Uh, secondly, propaganda. Um, there's a distinctive kind of propaganda, and it's a propaganda, kind of propaganda that you're familiar with. So, uh, so um, I was just at a conference at Princeton and Bernard Harcourt, at no the Nomos Conference, and Bernard Harcourt was mocking the new literature on uh, post-truth era. Um, rightly so, as if, as if uh, you know, propaganda is something new. And he's like, and he's citing, he looks at these books published since 2016 with these alarmist titles, and he's like, every one of these books, the, the book that's most frequently cited is George Orwell's 1984, which was written far before 2016. <laughs> so, so the idea that that, um, that what we're facing is new or novel is absurd. Um, uh, my book centers on the 1990s in the United States when you had horrific dehumanizing propaganda uh, fate, uh, uh, directed against black Americans. Uh, violent crime had been dropping since 1991 and yet super predator theory comes. Uh, election after election is run on the base, basis of out of control violent crime when violent crime has been dropping since 1991. Um, so propaganda, but there's a distinctive kind of fascist propaganda. It involves inversion, what I call in how propaganda works, undermining propaganda. It, it and, and you know, see this in Orwell. War is peace, freedom is slavery. He just makes it explicit. Um, Timothy Snyder in The Road to Unfreedom points out that Putin is always calling Angela Merkel and called Obama fascists, like they were the fascists. Uh, it's 
in fascist ideology, it's the other people. You always, you always flip everything around immediately. It's always the other people who are, whatever you're guilty of is what you accuse the others of. So, um, so this is a very common theme. Uh, in chapter two, I focus on the fact that every fascist campaign in history is an anti-corruption campaign. Uh, it, it's stunning the way, Putin 2011 runs an anti now Putin, he's a fine man. Um, by the way, that joke doesn't work in Ukraine. I, I was told that when I spoke to the Ukrainian par parliamentarians. Uh, no one laughed. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so, uh, so uh, but Putin ran an anti-corruption campaign. Putin is by some, uh, some, is supposed to be the wealthiest man on earth. Um, so, uh, so uh, the Nazis repeatedly ran anti-corruption campaigns, even though the Nazis were the most corrupt regime in history. And weirdly, if you consult your inner Nazi picture, you don't imagine the Nazis as corrupt, right? You think of them as pure anti-Semites, right? Admit it, in your head, the Nazis are a kind of pure anti-Semite. Whereas really, the Nazis were just mobsters and mafioso who wanted to steal Jewish property and seize Jewish land. For most of them, they couldn't care at all about the actual, they just, a lot, of, a lot of Nazi leaders cared about money and cash. Hitler was an, a pure anti-Semite. <laughs> but, uh, but, um, but a lot of them, uh, what they cared about, if you look at Bolsonaro uh, in Brazil right now, uh, Bolsonaro uh, is, uh, you know, ran an anti-corruption campaign, and yet Bolsonaro is far from an anti-corruption candidate. Um, so it's always this thing. Uh, the, uh, the, the other side are the corrupt ones. Um, so uh, what does corruption here mean? Kate Mann makes this point in Down Girl, uh, and uh, uh, that what it meant in the 2016 campaign is the wrong people are in charge. And, uh, and here is, here is Du Bois in uh, Black Reconstruction. Uh, so, uh, uh, so I'm in my mid-40s, and I will be until next week, um, where I'll turn 50. But, uh, but, and I learned when I was in school that Reconstruction ended because black people were not ready for self-government, that, that they were corrupt. Um, that was not true. <laughs> and here is Du Bois in Black Reconstruction. The South, finally, with almost complete unity, named the Negro as the main cause of Southern corruption. They said and reiterated this charge until it became history, that the cause of dishonesty during Reconstruction was the fact that four, four million disenfranchised black laborers, after 250 years of exploitation, had been given a legal right to have some voice in their own government, in the kinds of goods they would make, and the sort of work they would do, and the distribu distribution of the wealth, wealth which they created. In other words, uh, in other words, I mean, as, as, as you know, being at a university, Du Bois and Black Reconstruction painstakingly demonstrates that the black government, that the that the black state legislature of South Carolina, that that the that, that the uh, the newly enfranchised black citizens were the opposite of corrupt, that there was no corruption, that there was no that this charge of corruption was entirely fictitious. What it meant was that black people could finally self-govern, and that's what corruption meant. Um, so similarly, Kate Mann says, makes this point about women in her book, uh, Down Girl. Um, the, uh, 
in, uh, in his book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, Peter Pomerantsov, the, the uh, British uh, journalist who worked in Russia for many years, um, says that uh, Vladislav Surkov's um, uh, motto was, the way he ran every, the Putin's propaganda, propagandist, uh, political technologist, um, his motto is uh, democratic rhetoric with undemocratic intent. So the Kremlin was constantly uh, supporting, uh, they would, there would be an opposition group and then you'd find out that the Kremlin actually was you know, behind that opposition group. So everyone got hope and then the goal was to like crush that hope. That, but the, the, what Russia wants to say is democracy is a facade. Surkov has two pictures on his desk. One is of Putin and can you guess who the other is of? Does anyone know? Tupac. Because of course, rightly or wrongly, Surkov wants everyone to know that America is a white supremacist nation and its facade of democracy is just that, a facade. And he likes Tupac. Um, so, uh, so, so this opposite thing is characteristic of fascist propaganda. Um, free speech um, uh, is another one. The use of free speech as a way of, uh, a way of undermining liberalism. Um, Victor Klemper, in his great work, The Language of the Third Reich, LTI, Lingua Tertia Imperi, Imperi, says, the Weimar Republic suicidally lifted all controls on speech. The one slide I was going to show was of a campaign poster for the uh, National Socialists in 1928. It shows Hitler with a ma uh, his mouth taped, Leda uh, Verbot written on it, uh, saying, you know, Hitler is the one person out of all people in the world who's not allowed to speak. Um, uh, Goebbels makes light of this in, uh, in uh, uh, in a speech where he says, this will always remain one of the best jokes of democracy, that it gave its deadly enemies the means by which it was destroyed. Free speech, it has been since book eight of Plato's Republic, the weakness of, the known weakness of democracy. Democracy requires free speech. You can't have democracy without free speech. And yet that is its weakness because free speech enables demagogues as Plato, as Plato warns us in book eight. And democratic political theory, this is the goal of my book, How Propaganda Works, is to reorient the democratic political theory away from the distributive justice model that Rawls uh, provided and back towards what I regard as the central question of democratic political theory, which is how do you deal with the paradox of democracy? How do you deal with, with the thing that Plate led Plato to say democracy leads straightforwardly to tyranny? Namely, democracy requires, it's essential for democracy that you have free speech, and yet free speech is what enables the demagogue to end democracy. Um, and democratic political theory philosophy had this at its core for centuries. Um, uh, Rousseau in The Social Contract says, you know, uh, says uh, people laugh at the system I'm going to describe because they say what a wizard with words from Paris or London would immediately bewitch the masses. The goal of democracy is, the, the, the response in democratic political philosophy is to have an education system, to have uh, an education system that educates everyone so they, and, and gives people the background to, to be able to resist the resentments and, uh, that, uh, that a demagogue might foist upon us. Uh, and to have broad equality 
distributive equality so that people don't have these resentments. Um, that, is the, that is the response. Um, but, uh, but the use of free speech, I mean, the current campus moment uh, is not new. There's a book about Thalberg called, um, uh, I'm blanking on the name, it's by uh, Will, William Sheridan. Um, and it's about how Thalberg, a German town, went from being uh, majority social democrat to voting majority Nazi. And at one point he describes how there were many folkish parties, the Nazis were just one. And at one point he describes, uh, Sh William Sheridan Allen describes how, um, uh, uh, how uh, an ultranationalist group came to do a play and the students from the university marched with bricks down to shut the play down. Students shutting things down, ultranationalists down is not a new thing. <laughs> this is an old thing. Um, so, uh, so, so what we're seeing is a repeat of history. Um, so, and uh, the chapter three, anti-intellectual. So uh, it is um, universities become denounced as, as the site of Marxism, feminism. I just, I just spoke, uh, I, I just gave address, an address at Central Keynote at Central European University a couple weeks ago. Um, uh, they're being kicked out of Budapest. They have been kicked out of Budapest. Uh, very dramatic. Second week of the semester, buses came, took all the students to Vienna. Um, and they were kicked out because uh, Viktor Orban said that they were, uh, you know, that's where, that's where, you know, liberal ideology is. And gender, Viktor Orban in March outlawed gender studies from being taught in all of, uh, of Hungary. It's illegal to teach gender studies in Hungary. Um, so universities get denounced as like the sites of leftist indoctrination. You see this in India, you see this in Turkey. Academics get targeted. Um, uh, it's useful when thinking about fascism to remember Martin Niemöller's poem, who we all know. First they came for. First they came for the socialists and I said nothing because I was not a socialist. Next they came for the Jews and I said nothing because I was not a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionists and I said nothing. Uh, now it's controversial which parts were in the original, but that helps you see the targets. Socialists, religious or ethnic minorities, and labor unions. Um, I'll get to labor unions in a moment. Um, so universities are targeted as the sites for leftist indoctrination and the idea, what we see now, what we see now is people, people misrepresent the view that, uh, that, uh, that, well, What's happening now, it's really instructive to look at Nazi propaganda. So in my language and power class the other day, I analyzed the 1935 speech by Joseph Goebbels called Communism with its Mask Off. And in it, he, the center of it is a trope that's central to Nazism. It's that Western civilization is under attack. Western civilization is under attack from the Jewish Bolsheviks. Um, Hitler in Mein Kampf says, all, there are only three, three, three kinds of people. There are civilization creators, civilization maintainers, and civilization destroyers. And the Aryans are the only civilization creators. The Nazis repeatedly represent them, represented themselves. In this speech, communism with its mask off, Goebbels says the only the National Socialists recognize that culture itself, high culture itself, and human civilization 
are under threat from the Jewish Bolsheviks. What he's doing linguistically is he's dehumanizing Jews. He's saying that the value system of Jews is antithetical to culture, to the very concept of culture and civilization. So this idea that there are threats to civilization. The Nazis loved the ancient world. They loved, they represented themselves as the defenders of ancient Greece. They were not, of course. Plato, people, Plato was an authoritarian, of course, of some, some kind, believed in inequality, but he, he firmly believed in truth. Uh, Thrasymachus is the fascist in the Republic, although he's not quite a fascist because there's no nationalism in Thrasymachus. But Thrasymachus is, is Plato is arguing, uh, Socrates is arguing against Thrasymachus. Um, so, uh, and, and the, uh, the institutions, the, the, the institutions are not merely sort of uh, there to like prop up some national myth uh, in Plato. Plato is not uh, uh, for that. <laughs> uh, so, so the Nazis repeatedly represent themselves as the defenders of broad civilization, of, of, of civilization against the Jewish Bolsheviks. Um, and so now you find universities all across the world being attacked because the idea is Western civilization is under threat. I mean, it's different in India. And it's interestingly different, but things just get replaced. The idea there is the Westerners are the invaders. And, uh, and, the, and, and Hindutva ideology is under threat from this Western colonial invasion of the Abrahamic faiths, which is the umbrella under which they can put both Christianity and uh, and, uh, and Islam. Islam. Um, so, uh, so now one must remember that history is experienced in multiple ways, in different ways, the same period in history by different groups. So people will say, oh, the university, like Western civilization is under attack. They're saying there are different truths. There are no different truths. You know, Du Bois at the end of Black Reconstruction even capitalizes truth. Uh, there's one, you know, there's truth but it's experienced very differently by different people. Uh, you know, uh, the United States was experienced very differently by black Americans uh, in the 19th century than by white Americans and indeed today. Um, so, uh, so universities get attacked in these moments uh, and they get pushed, they get pushed, as is happening in India, as happening in Turkey, to replace the education system and in Hungary, uh, universities and schools with those who will promote the national myths um, so, uh, and reinforce, you know, uh, reinforce the Nazi race science institutes who will lend credibility to, uh, to the national myths. Um, uh, uh, reality, um, reality the, the, the information space in fascist politics is gripped by conspiracy theories. And there's a certain structure to conspiracy theories. The first time I started writing for the newspapers was when I, when I recognized birtherism. Uh, and I was like, well, that's messed up. My parents told me about that. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the, the conspiracy theories work in a very particular way. If you take the arch conspiracy theory, sort of the arch European conspiracy theory, um, I think of the two main conspiracy theories, uh, well, I mean, in the United States, we have what Angela Davis called the myth of the black rapist, as she says in her essay. You know, Frederick, she quotes Frederick Douglass uh, as saying, you know, every plantation was run by black men and white women, and there was not a single, in the Civil War, there was not a single report of black rape. But yet, suddenly, in the late 19th century, there's supposed to be this, you know, um, so, uh, and, uh, 
But in Europe, you have the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Of course, Henry Ford uh, copied, had made a half million copies to distribute for free in the United States. But the Protocols of the Elders of Zion are utterly, is essential, utterly essential to understand its structure. The idea, it's, the idea was, um, there's an international cabal of Jews who seek to break down the dominance of white Christians. And they're doing it by, by empower, by, by, by liberalism, by these globalizing doctrines of liberalism, communism, and capitalism. Their end goal is world Bolshevism, world communism. That's their end goal. And what they want to do is, suppl is supplant the, the Aryan race as the rulers. And they're going to bring in non-whites via lax immigration laws. Hitler in Mein Kampf says, uh, the, our immigration laws are the laughing stock of the world. That's a quote from Mein Kampf. The world laughs, at, if that might seem familiar. Um, uh, the world laughs at our immigration laws. The Jews were supposed to be behind the immigration laws. And the idea is that equality and freedom are means, of, are means that will force you to grant opposing groups an equal space. And once they take equal space, since equality is a myth, then the Jews will simply take over. So that's, that's the structure. That social justice is a mask for takeovers. Have you ever heard the idea, oh, women's studies, they don't want equality, they really want to take over. That's the protocols of the elders of Zion. The, because the idea is equality is a myth, it's just a mask. If you see Barry Weiss's How to, How to Defeat Anti-Semitism, she uses the protocols of the elders of Zion, that structure, against Islam. She says, she says, oh, it's just a hypocritical, the use of social justice is a hypocritical mask to try to attack the position of dominance of Israel. That move, that equality is just a mask for takeover, is the protocols of the elders of Zion. And the way that conspiracy theory works, the way conspiracy theories force themselves into the public space, is you use them as follows. You say, the Jews control the media, uh, which was you know, just completely not, I mean, something like 5.1% of, of journalists and editors were Jewish in Germany uh, and Austria. Uh, maybe that's just Germany uh, in the 1930s. But the Jews control the media, and you know this because the media isn't reporting on the fact that the Jews control the media. So that's how, these, that's how they work. So they trap you. So when I saw Donald Trump on CNN say, oh, in 2012, Obama owns C runs CNN, and you can tell because they're not reporting on the birtherism, you know, that's how you know he owns it. That's how they work. The very same thing worked with Law and Justice, the Law and Justice Party in Poland, uh, in the Kaiten Smolensk disaster where they were like 20-some-odd conspiracies. You can read all about it in, the, in, in How Fascism Works. So you trap the media. You say, here's this, here's this conspiracy theory. Uh, you're not the fact that you're not reporting on it shows that you're in on the conspiracy theory. So conspiracy theories dominate. People lose all sense of the truth, and they're just like, okay, it's us against them. Everyone's lying. One of my first New York Times pieces a decade ago is called Media and Mistrust. It's an analysis of Fox News' slogan, a fair and balanced, which of course means no one is fair and balanced. Um, right? That's what the point of calling it fair and balanced. 
what they're trying to suggest is just as fair and balanced as everyone else. Um, RT, the Russian propaganda station, has some great stuff. There's great stuff on RT. It also has some really wild stuff. The motto of RT is question more. This is something that the Russian political technologists figured out, a, lo a loophole in, in Western democracy, in free speech. If you put all things on an equal platform, giving equal credence to each, people will lose all sense of reality. The Trump administration says, look, we don't deny there's climate, human-caused climate change. We just want open debate about it. We're just going to have red team, blue team debates about it. What do you think that will do to the credibility of climate change denial? So that's the challenge we face. That's a cha you, what the Russian political technologists discovered is if you allow everything, then, every, then people lose, lose touch with reality and just re return themselves to us versus them. So uh, uh, recently I was introduced at a talk by someone who said, uh, yeah, uh, uh, my neighbor, Trump supporting neighbor said when I said to him, uh, well, what do you think about Trump's open lying? He said, well, the other side is doing it too. He has to. So that's the goal of that. You just destroy reality and get the sense that everyone is lying. So let me go quickly now. So unreality, um, hierarchy. The, um, the, uh, uh, the greatest myth of all is that some of us are better than others because of our group identity. Uh, a sad fact is that we all suck in roughly equal degrees. Um, so, uh, so, uh, um, uh, so, uh, as Max Weber writes, the fates of human beings are not equal. Men differ in their states of health and wealth or social status or whatnot. Simple observation shows that in every such situation, he, he who is more favored feels, fear, feels the never-ceasing need to look upon his position as in some way legitimate, upon his advantage being deserved, and the other's disadvantage being brought about the latter's fault, by the latter's fault. That the purely accidental causes of the difference may be ever so obvious makes no difference. Um, so the idea is the cornerstone, as the cornerstone speech says, uh, uh, the cornerstone is a hierarchy. Some groups are better than others. Um, then victimhood. Um, the politics of fascism is a never-ceasing, never-ending victimhood dirge. The dominant group is a victim of minority, of minority equality. The dominant group are the world's greatest victims. Uh, Victor Orban, October 12, 2017, introduced the uh, International Conference on Christian Victimhood, I think it was something like that, or Christian. Uh, he said the Christians are the most victimized group in the world right now. The idea is the dominant group, uh, the men's rights movement, the dominant group is always the victim of, of increased equality. Uh, you know, uh, battling with Hindutva supporters on Twitter recently, you know, they would say, it doesn't matter how many Muslims get, you know, what the Muslims have done to Hindus, where they meant in the last thousand years what some Muslim did to some, <laughs> you know, can never be revenged enough. Um, so, uh, 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 what are they victims of? Well, the in-group in outgrouping of fascism always has the same pattern. The outgroup has two features. They're criminals and they're lazy. Doesn't matter where you go. It's shocking the universality of that. I have these, I've looked at these Nazi education textbooks where they show, well, I'll get to laziness later, but the next is law and order. 
The fascist leader, no matter how corrupt or law-breaking he is, uh, is always saying the out-group, the men in the out-group, they're, they're threats to law and order. They're criminals. What kind of criminal are the men in the out-group? Rapists, always. The Rohingya, in, tw in 2012, three Rohingya men raped a ranking wo woman. In response, all the Rohingya were consigned to about 180-some villages. Five to six years of hate speech, genocidal hate speech directed against them resulted in at least an ethnic cleansing, if not a genocide. Um, it is always uh, this, um, uh, it's always what I call sexual anxiety. The immigrant groups, uh, the, so Sinclair, just last week, uh, it came out that the Sinclair Media Group, which talk about, you know, if you think the Jews own the media, we'll look at Sinclair Media Group, that's not us. Um, the, uh, and they, they have been highlighting sex crimes by immigrants. Um, Tim, my colleague Timothy Snyder has a piece coming out in Zeit where he points out that the greatest number of criminals caught in Austria, arrested in Austria are Germans. <laughs> the greatest foreign group that's arrested for, but uh, Kickel, the interior minister of, for FPO, Freiliche Partei Österreich, the Nazi, the Nazi, Austrian Nazi party, uh, uh, he went around and he ordered the police not to speak to Der Standard, the liberal newspaper, but unless it was a sex crime by immigrant, by an immigrant. Um, so you have the highlighting of sex crimes uh, by, by, by immigrants. Um, ch chapter 9 is called Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, chapter 1 of Mein Kampf is Hitler talking about his beautiful little hometown where everyone is German. And then chapter 2 is my study and struggles in Vienna. And he comes to Vienna and there's, there's foreigners everywhere, you know, uh, there's French people and Romanians and Hungarians and lang different languages everywhere. This in a German city, Vienna, a German-speaking city, there's foreigners and Jews, Jews and more Jews. The cities are where there's all this mixture of foreigners, there's gays and there's the hated outgroup. Uh, and if you think about what the phrase inner city means in the mouths of American politicians, you can see what chapter, you can basically get a guide to the role of Jews in, in, in found. It was the same thing. The Jews lived in the cities. Uh, Romania did itself no favors by, uh, by barring Jews from owning homes in the countryside. They could just live in the cities. Uh, and chapter 10, finally, is called Arbeit macht frei. Uh, work shall make you free. This was emblazoned on the gates of Auschwitz because the idea was Jews were lazy. The paradigm of a lazy occupation was what? Does anyone know? Banking. Banking, was, which is funny because <laughs> that's kind of switched. Uh, but the paradigm of a lazy occupation was banking. The idea was Jews just earned interest and lazed about and just lived off the state and the interest they got from banking. So I have a book with a German education textbook that shows soft hands. Okay, these are, hands are pretty soft too, but, um, but typing is hard. Uh, the, uh, so, uh, and, and the idea was, and it says, Jewish lays soft hands from never having done a, a day's work. And the idea, was, the idea was Jews were lazy by their nature, and to make them free, you were doing them a favor. You were giving them a work ethic 
by consigning them to labor camps and forcing them to work. The chapter is actually what white Americans mean when they call black Americans lazy. That's what the Nazis meant by Arbeit macht frei. I once asked someone talking about the fact that the average hourly wage for people in prison, uh, people in prison is like 23 cents an hour across, across the country. I said, he said, no, they should pay because we're giving them a work ethic. And I said, what about someone doing life in prison? He said, no, but a work ethic is good for everyone. Well, that is concentration camp logic. And everywhere, the outgroup men are lazy and the outgroup women are invisible. And when they're visible, they're just supposed to be prostitutes or decadent women, um, as in uh, Hutu power uh, commandments. Um, so there's this idea, at, and at the, at the center, and I'm going to end with this, at the center of Nazi, there, there, there was a mystery that I had to sort of address in this book, which is why so many libertarians end up being fascists. So libertarianism is an anti-fascist ideology. But at the base of libertarianism and at the base of fascism is the same thing, social Darwinism. That value goes to those who win in a struggle. Anne Rand never explains why she wouldn't gas the disabled. There's nothing in Anne Rand's philosophy that explains why all human beings have dignity and value regardless of their capacity to win in a struggle. Now, libertarianism does not involve this idea of group worth. So libertarianism is a philosophy of the individual and as such is inconsistent with fascism because fascism says certain groups are harder working than other groups and therefore have more value. Certain groups have shown over time that they have more value. But this core idea that your value and dignity come from hard work and victory in a struggle that social Darwinist idea is at the core of both libertarianism and fascism. As I say in the book, libertarianism is the Manhattan dinner party face of social Darwinism. Um, so, uh, and fascism takes that individual ideology and moves it to, to a group. Um, you know, I was talking to Ann Applebaum, uh, we were at a conference together and she was like, yeah, all these right, Ann Applebaum is a conservative, a principled libertarian conservative, and she says, you know, all, so many of my libertarian friends became national, far-right nationalists because this idea that, you're that the outgroup is lazy and your worth comes from what you've earned in a struggle is core to fascism. And what we learn from disability studies is that actually dignity and worth do not come from victory in a struggle. They come from just being human. Uh, and that is disconnected from the very concept of a struggle. Um, but if you ever need to remember the centrality of this idea that worth comes from victory in a struggle, be that struggle of free market uh, in markets or be that struggle on the battlefield, just remember the title of Hitler's book, My Struggle. And on that note, thank you. Thank you very much, Jason. Um, it's interesting that the press communications department pressurely said uh, a philosophy lecture, but what was kind of striking to me is it was also a meditation almost in comparative politics, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, or philosophical comparativism. Um, so we are actually very, uh, doing very well with regards to time, we're at 5.15, so 
Uh, we're going to have a question and answer period roughly of about 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, there is a microphone that is uh, that will be circulating. I'll help probably to uh, get the microphone around. Uh, and just to repeat what I mentioned in the beginning, if you can speak into the microphone, uh, that would be helpful uh, for recording uh, purposes. And do you mind at least fielding the? Oh, I can I'd love around, to. But fielding the questions and um, until the floor is is open. Uh, is it is it working? Yeah. Okay, it's working. Uh, thank you for the great talk. It's uh, got a lot here. I'm curious, though, uh, when we think of outstanding cases of fascism history, the role of like a charismatic leader seems to be in the mix. And I was just wondering about your, your thoughts about that. Great, what Weber called charismatic authority. So there's a, um, so, um, <clears throat> yeah, you have, uh, so w in a democracy, the kind of authority that should rule is epistemic authority. We, we're supposed to be in a town hall, as Neil, Neil said. You know, our faculty meetings are like New England town halls. And, uh, and, and so we're supposed to be in a town hall. Your, your point is given weight insofar as it has epistemic authority as it's backed by. The goal of fascist politics is to replace epistemic authority by charismatic authority. But, and then replace the universities by people who just back up the charismatic authority, whatever the myths are. Um, so uh, charismatic authority uh, is, uh, and, and the version, and then there's a very particular type of charismatic authority that we find uh, both, we find Adorno in the culture industry being very clear about it, we find Arendt, we find this very clear overlap. Uh, or, uh, chapter, in chapter 11 of uh, Origins, Arendt tells us in, in the section entitled um, The Alliance Between the Masses and the Elites, when she's talking about the disaffected elites and the disaffected masses unifying, she says, they like, they like it for the leader to be vulgar. They want the disaffected, both the elites and the masses who want to get back at, at, at the sort of, at the real elite, at the, at the supposed, the, the cosmopolitans who are running things. They want the satisfaction of the leader being someone who they know that the, the, cosm the leader, that the real elite view as vulgar. And they want the satisfaction of having, the thought of having them have to bow and scrape to someone they regard as vulgar. So she says, you know, uh, the voters loved the idea of a simple house painter of like the elite of Berlin having to like kneel in front of a simple how vulgar house painter. Um, so, uh, so that idea of vulgarity is central. Um, I don't know if that's relevant now. Um, but uh, then, then another idea you get from Ad an idea you get from Adorno. So the nature of the charismatic authority is uh, then the idea you get from Adorno is this idea of the, what he calls a little big man from the culture industry. Um, the little big man is someone who's achieved remarkable things but he's just like you. Um, so, you know, you can relate to him. So there's an interview with President Trump from many years ago when they ask him what he means by poor white trash. He says, someone, someone who's just like me but not rich. Um, so um, I have a lot of respect for the president's rhetorical abilities, picking up on these, on these uh, uh, memes and, and themes. Um, so, uh, so you find those, you find those, th this idea, you find again and again 
this idea of the form of charismatic authority being this getting back at the elite. Um, uh, and, uh, and someone who, I think they call it owning the libs now. The, the last time uh, I heard Thrasymachus mentioned, uh, it was in a discussion of Leo Strauss at Chicago and his students who'd gone on to be these neo-fascists in, right. <laughs> you know, in some accounting, uh, neoconservatives in other people's language, um, Dick Cheney and yeah. Yeah, Dick Cheney. a number of others, some of whom uh, Wolfowitz specifically had studied with yeah. uh, Leo Strauss. What my understanding was that they that he taught that that the the Republic was an esoteric text that in fact Socrates' intent was to make the claim that Thrasymachus was right. Right, <laughs> because he, because arguing against Thrasymachus is so hard. <laughs> because, because I mean Strauss I think claims that if I'm not mistaken I might be wrong on this that you know there's no uh, the the comments the. Socrates' arguments at the end of book one, Keith McPartland is here, so I'm not going to go too far out on a limb, but, uh, but, uh, uh, but Socrates' arguments at the end of book one are bad. And so, you know, they're not, he acts like he's defeated Thrasymachus, but he clearly hasn't by the end of book one. But the way I read the Republic is the whole Republic is a reply to Thrasymachus. Um, the whole thing. You know, if you want to respond to the view that, all, that justice is just the interests of the powerful, you need to describe a Kallipolis, you need to describe an education system, you need to describe how we get out of the, K, the shadows and illusions of ideology that, that would be the, uh, I mean, I think of the Republic as the great description of ideology, of, of you know, Thrasymachus is saying, you know, the, the, the ruling ideas are the, are the ideas of the rulers. And, and Plato and Socrates is responding to that. But the response doesn't come at the end of book one. That's a very unsatisfactory response. The whole work, I think, is a response to Thrasymachus. Thank you for a uh, for very interesting talk. Um, <clears throat> essentially, the way you, you frame this fascist script so far uh, sounds like a very uh, supply side uh, th type of argument. Essentially, this is the script, it's delivered right. by a charismatic authority or whatever on, on the population. Uh, could you flip actually the perspective uh, on the other side? What's the demand side of, of fascism in a sense? Uh, is it that the population is really kind of shaped into this uh, script by some leader? Actually, is the leadership or, or the narrative uh, coming from, from bottom up in, great, in, great, in, other, great. in other ways? Uh, and from that perspective, how do you kind of explain variations? So like, why do we have kind of this fa fascist spike now versus maybe 10 years, 20 years ago? Great. Uh, why does it get repeated across societies in a very similar, you know, familiar <coughs> fashion, uh, even though you have extremely different uh, uh, societies? And uh, how, do you, how do people actually get disenchanted? Like, you know, why do you have a fascist follower then give it up? Uh, great, great. Uh, great series. So first of all, so... Uh, Leopold Senghor, in his work, The Definition of African Socialism, talks about the difficulty of bringing this European concept of socialism over to Africa, because he claims there's no division by class in Africa. Uh, but he, so he's trying to define socialism for Africa. Um, and he, uh, so he says, so he says um, you're going to have to, 
Uh, there's going to be variations. There's going to, you're going to have to have a concept that's abstract enough, but that's, that's applicable and that, that's applicable even without some of the features that were local to, uh, to Europe. Um, and that's what I'm trying to do with fascism. I'm trying to do, uh, I'm answering, I'm going in reverse order of the things you raised. I'm trying to, I'm trying to say there is a structure and it's despite very different background conditions, it is a central, it is and should be a central concept in all philosophy departments. All philosophy departments are someone who teaches it because it's something that occurs and reoccurs. Now I don't think, so in that sense it's not what Senghor calls a completely historically located concept. People fight back against me by saying, no, fascism is a completely historically located concept. You can't talk about fascism now. My argument is that's just not true. We can trace historical developments. Uh, Hindutva is clearly directly influenced by Hitler. So you can put, put clear social uh, developments there, but you can also see a structure. I don't think that fascism is universal. I said Thrasymachus is not uh, a fascist in the contemporary sense because you need right Hegelianism. You need nationalism, which is a 19th century thing. You need Fichte. You need, you need, you need the Germans. <laughs> I mean, you need the Americans. I mean, Benjamin Rush is an American ultranationalist. So you need, you need, you know, Benjamin, you should read Benjamin Rush on the criminal British immigrants, you know, bringing criminality in. So you need this 19th century construction of nationalism. You need the idea that power goes with a group, a national group and a national myth, and one person represents that power. But you have that structure now, and then you find it repeated everywhere. And what I'm trying to do is describe that. Um, now, uh, now, what about, um, what, what about the, you ask one of the central questions in propaganda studies when you ask um, uh, uh, how does, you know, the cent what I view as the central question in propaganda studies is how is propaganda causally efficacious over and above background ideologies? Does propaganda just channel the background? Because in the story I tell on how propaganda works, Propaganda is only effective given a background ideology. So how can propaganda create an ideology? And we know it can because as Claudia Kunz tells us in the Nazi conscience, Germany was the least anti-Semitic country in 1933 and it was the most anti-Semitic country in 1939. So propaganda can create ideologies. Um, but propaganda is going to be entirely ineffective unless there's already something, some proclivity to that background ideology. So you ask the central question of propaganda studies, namely, what is the relationship between, you know, the ideology enables the propaganda to be effective, but the propaganda strengthens the ideology. How does propaganda strengthen an ideology? Um, to some extent, it does so, uh, it's too big of a question to take on now, but some of the core things are, when you repeat, you, you can repeat unknowingly, uh, uh, take the, two, the Lynn Terrell's case study in her great paper, Genocidal Language Games, her five year, her study of the Rwandan genocide, the propaganda leading to the Rwandan genocide. They called Tutsis snakes. Now, in Rwanda, if you ever know, my partner grew up in Kenya and she once had a poisonous snake in her bedroom that they had to, took months to get out. She's terrified of snakes, like terrified. Like I'm not so terrified of snakes because I didn't have that background experience. Rwanda has a terrible, dangerous, poisonous snake problem. They're a serious health threat. 
When you kill a snake, when a boy is given a machete to kill a snake, it's a manhood ritual. Calling, in Rwanda, calling somebody, a group, people snakes, is connected to a practice. And it's that connection to a practice and regularizing and normalizing the connection to that practice that might make someone flip from being neutral on someone to connecting it with a, a, a ritual that, of, of honor. A question. And if there are, we can probably take two or three more questions, but especially if there are any students who have questions, um, uh, do raise your hand. I'll see my oh. question to a student if there is one. Is there any? Are there any? Maybe think it over. <laughs> uh, Professor Stanley, this may not be a fair question, but sitting here, not being an expert on fascism, I can't help but notice the similarity of the characteristics that you are presenting and what I feel is happening in this country today. Where are we headed? I mean, the, the fascist regimes that I am most familiar with only were defeated through a world war. What's going to happen here in this country, given what's going on? Now, I think one thing that is important to remember, and in my book, when you find me discussing the United States, you'll find me discussing uh, one thing I didn't mention, which I should have mentioned, which is, uh, and, uh, is in fascist politics, you always, you have certain propaganda and then you try to make it true. Uh, so uh, Timothy Snyder in Black Earth talks about how uh, the Ch Czechoslovakian fascist leader um, sends, immiserates the Jewish population and then sends them diseased across borders. And then, you know, thereby making it true that Jews are diseased and, you know, similarly, if you want to say that immigrants are diseased and lice-ridden, why don't you put them in detention centers and, and then suddenly they're going to be diseased and lice-ridden. So, so, and the examples I focus on are the United States, not from now, but from uh, using Elizabeth Hinton's great work on the rise of mass incarceration, from poverty to mass incarceration. From, from uh, poverty to the war, war on poverty, the war on crime, uh, the making of mass incarceration in America. And what she does is she, is she describes how from, 19, from Nixon on, we had this way of creating high crime rates in order to justify the politics of, victim, of attacking black men. So we've had this fascist politics. Throughout the 1990s, we had an entirely fictional narrative directed against young black men. You know, so, uh, so we have here a population that's fought fascism for a long time, black Americans. And, you know, uh, you know, if I had to do the civil rights movement, I would definitely do it in Vermont or Maine. I wouldn't do it in Alabama. But, so, I'm actually more heartened living in America because we do have a long population, a long struggle with fake news. With, I mean, who's been subject to fake news more than black Americans? I mean, Ida B. Wells has been. So this is something that's part of our history. And we have a history of fighting against it internally. So I, I think that we have weapons and mechanisms here and a history of fighting against this that other countries don't have. Um, 
So, uh, so I think I think we can recognize what uh, what some. I mean, the anti-immigration stuff was something a little bit of a jolt, how explicit it is. But if we look back, we we consider our history of race relations. We've we've always been fighting this. And one thing I'm doing in my book, I mean, one of the main figures in my book is Richard Nixon. <laughs> you know, uh, you know. Um, so, so fake news. Look at the Iraq War. So yeah, it's pretty dire now. But we also have a history of fighting back against this. Things have always been dire in our country. Before Trump came, we had we imprisoned 756 per 100,000 people in our population. The second highest prison rate in the world is Rwanda with 440 per, and, they, and a lot of them are genocideers. So, so, you know, we already had a problem. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, at least now we see it, we recognize it. I think the president is very skilled at destroying institutions. Um, and, uh, and so we have a problem, but it's not like, it's not like there wasn't a civil rights movement in this country. Maybe if we can, how many hands? Okay. Maybe if we can take um, a few. Yeah, I, I can go on and on. I'm yeah. a philosopher. Um, <laughs> so how about let's just take the kind of uh, three questions together, and then you can answer, and then we'll uh, you can talk answer among that friends right. informally afterwards. Does that sound okay? Uh, hi, uh, I just wanted to ask you a, a little bit, uh, I'll try to make this fast because I know other people want to ask questions, uh, about the state of study of fascism now. It seems to be in a little bit of a limbo-like state insofar as the characterizations of fascism seem to have this kind of uh, omnibus character. Mm. They're kind of compendium, they're sort of like lists of what, of you know, mm all sorts of features, right. know, idealization of the past, uh, personality cults, uh, you know, the, the cult of very hard work and it's obverse of the you know, hatred of lazy people. Right. Um, but um, some of these, some of these the characteristics actually work right. against each other. So for example, the, the, um, you know, the adoration of a golden uh -huh. age uh, really doesn't go so well with the idea of decadence, with you know, the hatred of decadence and the love of hard work, given the fact that many of these golden ages, especially in sort of like the fascist imaginary, these golden ages were feudalist, and which meant that some people you know, actually lived relatively leisure and not very hardworking lives. Um, so my question is, uh, what is now, do you think, like sort of the affective core of fascism? Is there a sense that we're any closer to understanding or coming to grips with a possible algorithm that coherently unifies all of this? Mm. Keep that thought. We're going to just pull this together. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> you sure? Okay. All right, then we'll make it two, and then you can ask that. Yeah. Hi. Um, so I, I'm interested in the what you were describing in response to the question about where, how this background ideology is created. Um, and in particular, I'm just curious, like in Nazi Germany, what kind of linking was going on between, or if there was any, between the, a practice, like the analogy to the machete you were describing and, mm -hmm. and the words that were being used? Oh, great question. Um, okay, so are those the two questions? Yeah. Keep, keep, um, right. uh, so, um, uh, that was a very hard one. <laughs> um, let me cut back to that. Let me 
think about that for a second. Um, that's a great question. Oh, here's an example. Um, Victor Klemperer talks about how shiploads of trains, this is going to be a little gruesome, were measured in cadaver febato. What does that mean? The utilization of carcasses. So they would measure the train passenger, how many trains came, how many people were in the train by cadaver febatum. And what's meant there is the use of carcasses for fertilizer. So when you're measuring human beings in terms of how useful they are in terms of their weight as fertilizer, and you're connecting, and it's part of the technical official speak of concentration camps, you can imagine how that objectifies human beings. So that's one example. There are more. Uh, and as far as fascism studies, so I think um, it's been interesting recently. So you have um, Paxton, Griffin, they are sort of the 90s godfathers of fascism studies. Then you have this newer generation. Then you have Timothy Snyder, Jan Grosch, um, uh, the Holocaust historians, um, and, uh, and then you have uh, scholars in African American studies who've always theorized fascism and racism. I mean, Toni Morrison, for instance, uh, just was the example I gave. My colleague Rod Ferguson in Women and Gender Studies uh, at Yale is writing a book on fascism too. So, so you're having this new generation grow up because you recognize, people recognize, like, why is it that all over gender studies is being attacked? Like, there are, you know, it unifies people across disciplines. Um, uh, uh, so, so I think there, you are seeing, like, Frederica, I'm making, I'm, you know, uh, Right after 20, the 2016 election, there were all these propaganda conferences. I went to 14 propaganda conferences in 2017. And nobody knew what a propaganda expert was because there wasn't anyone, you know, wasn't, when I wrote How Propaganda Works, I was ridiculed by political philosophers. I'm like, that's a weird topic. It's not 1950. And, but, but then, but, and, and, but now you have like many courses across Yale that are on propaganda. Like I'm teaching in six different, I'm giving guest lectures in six different Yale courses all on propaganda this semester. Something similar, I think, is going to happen with fascism. Already, like there's Mabel Berezine at Cornell, Federico Finkelstein at CUNY Graduate Center. I just blurbed his book, um, A Fascist History of Lies. Uh, so, uh, so as democracy stands to truth, so fascism stands to lying. And so Finkelstein's book is a, Finkelstein is a scholar of Central and South American fascism. He's an Argentinian Jewish historian. And he's been focusing on Central and South America. Lisa Wedeen in Chicago has been focusing on Indonesian fascism. Um, so, uh, so, and we've all been linking up because we, we see the same structures, we see the same patterns. Um, Finkelstein in his book, I mean, it's a marvelous book, it's coming out, and he talks about, he looks at Goebbels' diaries. And we know Goebbels' diaries were meant to be private. And he looks at like an event like Goebbels manufactured a fake assassination. And we know that, we know he manufactured, he reported to the newspapers. But so Finkelstein's question is, how did fascists think of their own lies, like in private? How did they relate to their own lies? 
And what he points out is that in Goebbels' diary, which we know that Goebbels just wrote for himself and did not intend to be publicized, Goebbels writes as if it was a real assassination attempt. So, so this connection of fascism to lying uh, and the connection of democracy to truth, those are very core to understanding things. The, for me, I learned like both Du Bois's Black Reconstruction and Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism talk again and again about labor unions. Fascists are obsessed with labor unions. They hate labor unions. You know, uh, Mein Kampf again and again comes back to the trade unions question. Uh, du Bois is saying, you know, yeah, you know, it was the threat of a labor movement that brought the end of Reconstruction. So there's this theme of labor movements. You know, the first group of people that Breitbart, so there's a right-wing attack on professors. It's been happening since 2011. I got hit in fall 2016. Um, you know, suddenly there's like dozens and dozens of articles about you. Your phone starts ringing. You start getting death threats. Um, Tommy Curry got hit. It goes, you know, um, uh, it's harsh. Um, the first group that got hit were labor, labor studies professors in 2011. Um, I talked to one of them. He couldn't leave his house for a year because of, uh, uh, I mean, it's rough <laughs> when it happens. Um, they contact your alumni and they start mass calling the university. So labor, labor studies professors, gender, look at David Horowitz. David Horowitz, uh, you know who that is? Oh, yeah. yeah, right. So he had these, he was the one and, and he focused on freedom of speech, academic free, and it was all about attacking. The, he's the originator of the, uh, he was Stephen Miller's, Stephen Miller is his protege. Uh, uh, um, Jeff Sessions was another person who worked closely with Horowitz. Horowitz wrote two books, the, the country's most dangerous professors. The first book is all um, uh, gender studies, feminist theorists, and African American studies professors. The second book is all Middle Eastern studies professors. Um, and in 2006, he pushed the academic freedom, pushed Michigan to adopt a free speech thing, which meant, you know, police, police, you know, the, the enemies of free speech are the leftist ideologues on campus. So, um, so you get this sort of gender study, so you get this recognition of the structure. And, and, uh, and Timothy Snyder's work has been, for me, very essential. Marcy Shore and Timothy Snyder are my, uh, I work very closely with them. Um, and, uh, because, and they're looking at Eastern Europe because this is, you know, Eastern Europe has flipped very dramatically. Like the libertarianism to fascism uh, in, in Eastern Europe has been very heavy. Like in the 1990s, all those countries became libertarian democratic, like everybody was a libertarian. And then suddenly a lot of them shift to ultranationalism. So, so I think you're finding, you know, and I've been working obviously with, as you probably saw in this talk, scholars of Indian, of Hindutva. So, so a lot of us, rec and obviously Israel is a central example that I have been heavily criticized for not mentioning because the death threats come flowing when you do that. Uh, but um, Israel is obviously a so much of a model that uh, there's a nice intercept piece from like five or six years ago called How Breitbart Became a Pro-Israel Site for Anti-Semites. Um, so, uh, so this idea that, that you know, uh, 
uh, because Israel is pushing ethno-nationalism, ultra-nationalism. That's why Israel's inviting Orban and the Lange Kaczynski, all, you know, all people doing anti-Semitic politics to, vi to visit and, you know. Uh, so Israel is a major promoter of ethno-nationalism right now. Um, uh, and you see these links between these leaders. So, so scholars, so we all kind of find each other and work together and, 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 and describe these patterns. Uh, my book is in its third printing in Brazil because Bolsonaro apparently fits this perfectly. Uh, when I, you know, I'm, I, was on, I was on the covers of Old Globo and Folha de Sao Paulo multiple times during the election, even though I knew nothing about Brazil, but everyone was just like, this is a description of, of Bolsonaro. Um, so you have this structure. My view is this structure has a kind of attraction and political and, and in American universities, we did a real disservice by not collecting the structure. And the structure, to be critical of even my, even my close friends, like Charles, I was saying this to Charles Mills, I don't think race is the backbone. Because last I checked, Hindus are not white <laughs> in India. You know, there's a stru borrowed structure of which white supremacy is pro just its most obvious instance. Um, and, and so, and I think that structure, not theorizing that structure, um, has been a real problem and not seeing that that structure, patriarchal, ultranationalism, um, to be honest, Farrakhan can fit that sometimes. Um, and that's a, that's a structure that we need to understand, we need to describe. And I, and I think via being targets, a lot of us have connected in that way. 